Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Kion Wolf, The Daily Show, hosting audition, take one. Tonight, why can't you hear pterodactyls go to the bathroom? Because the pee is silent. And how many South Americans does it take to screw in a light bulb? A Brazilian. Later, what? Well, too stupid. Really? Because those are great jokes. If you're in fourth grade, kick it up a few notches. Kion Wolf, The Daily Show, hosting audition, take two. Tonight, the foundation of historical materialism. We're dealing with a philosophical critique of political economy because the basic categories of Marxist theory arise out of his empathetic confrontation with the philosophy of Hegel, e.g. labor, objectification, alienation, supersession, Cut. You didn't let me get to the punchline. There's a huge payoff coming here. Uh, no one cares. Kion Wolf, The Daily Show hosting audition, take three. Quick story. Last weekend, I was spending time with my niece. So we go to the park, and it's, you know, swings in the jungle gym, and I'm thinking, I'm getting too old for this. Anyway, she's going to help me hang some curtains in my apartment, but she got distracted by her toys. And before you know it, her mom picks her up, and I'm trying to figure out what to have for dinner. Is there anything good on TV? Uh, What? This seems like a boring story with no actual point. What do you people want from me? Keep it tight and make it funny and news-oriented in a personal way. Kion Wolf, take four. Vegetable oil. That's it? It was all I could think of. Have you ever seen Jon Stewart? Who's he? Well, that explains a lot. On the show today, how does the world not get worse without Jon Stewart on The Daily Show? Also, two aging icons, Annie Lennox and Joni Mitchell, put the music world to shame. And now, back from a night of drinking with Ruth Bader Ginsburg... Colin McEnroe. Yes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is now explaining her sleepiness uh, at the uh, president's address and the fact that she was not, as she, as she put it, not entirely sober. Um, you know, how else would, would you get through life as a U.S. Supreme Court justice anyway? I mean, I wouldn't be either. All right, so that's not what we're talking about today. First of all, joining us from Trinity College, uh, Professor Irene Papoulos uh, from the world of music and producing and everything else, Professor Jim Chapdelaine, uh, and from The Cut, a magazine for the, for the angry and disenchanted but also very hopeful Young Adults uh, of Connecticut, uh, Professor Teresa Kramer. Uh, so with all these professors here, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about John Stewart at the beginning. Maybe say goodbye to David Carr. I mean, he meant something to all of us, too, although obviously there's been a long, long day of public radio talk about uh, David Carr and about John Stewart, for that matter. In our second segment, we got kind of interested in two... I guess it's fair to say aging music icons, uh, Annie Lennox, who's my age, and <laughs> who's my age and Jim's age, uh, and Joni Mitchell, who's a little bit older than that. Uh, but both of them kind of still making their mark in really interesting ways. So we'll talk about that. If there's time, we might also talk about uh, candy hearts for Valentine. You know those little, what are they called? They just call it candy hearts, right? I think so. Or right. sometimes Braces, message breakers. hearts. I challenged everybody on the show to come up with one thing to put on a 20 15 candy heart. I don't know if they came up with anything. We'll find out. Uh, and, and, you know, you can participate, too. I mean, there's no prizes or anything. We're in pledge drive mode, so we're not giving things, you know, unless you give us stuff. Um, all right. So uh, time to begin. So John Stewart. And, you know, I, I just want to say for starters that John Stewart 
you know, he's, he's so much has his stamp on this era. Then when we started the nose, I mean, I think for the first two months, it was almost impossible to do the nose without playing a clip of John Stewart because whatever we wanted to talk about, he'd already gotten there. He or Colbert had gotten there and had this incredibly crafty, funny take on it. And we've, I finally just sort of said, we're not doing that anymore because it's just repeating the very good work of these people. But I do feel as though this guy built something that kind of didn't exist before he built it. I mean, it, it is... Uh, in fact, of a, a, a style of humor, a style of television programming, which may have precedence, but nothing, nothing really anywhere near as good. So I, we obviously feel his loss. Um, does anybody feel like there's any way that this could be good or okay, or you know, or just time, or does anybody not feel a, an aching, gaping wound? I'm looking I over at you. Yeah. Well, so I didn't feel that way when I first heard the news. Um, I was very sad that he was going. And then last night I watched a couple of this week's episodes and I was just like, you know what? I'm not laughing nearly as hard as I laugh at John Oliver when I watch it. And so I was thinking maybe it is time to give someone and someone else a chance. Yeah, I think that too. By the way, if you want to chime in about this, 860-275-7266. We're even going to speculate on who actually that other person could be. Or maybe it's going to be other people. Maybe they're going to be lots of offshoots. Uh, 860-275-7266. You may tweet at us at WNPR Colin. So, Jim Chapterlane, I'll let you react any way you want to about this. I mean, you know, what are your thoughts on letting go of Jon Stewart? Uh, I, I don't want to let go, but, <laughs> but I will let go. Um, I think, you know, every now and then you find this sort of iconoclastic guy. I think David Letterman was one who sort of broke late night TV then fixed it and then John Stewart came in and sort of created a whole new type of media real estate and 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 that's been populated like by John Oliver and recently my new Twitter friend Larry Wilmore <laughs> um, and, and who is basically I think kind of doing the nose every night and, and very effectively um, but he's certainly been the springboard for an enormous amount of talent. And I don't know if you could find another center like the, the, the creamy nougat center that is Jon Stewart to that show. I don't know how you do it because there's a lot of satellites that are awesome. But who's, who can make it all coalesce like he can? You know, I, Irene, one of the truisms, one of the things that gets said a lot – is that particularly for the generation of students that you've been teaching over the last however many years at Trinity, you know, he's been sort of become a kind of primary news source, which I mean, I'm sure is true for an awful lot of, of people who are now in their 20s. Um, but I think what's, to, what's amazing, there's, there's a Pulitzer that they give in a category, there's a Pulitzer category called explanatory journalism. And it doesn't exactly mean what Jon Stewart does, but I almost feel like he should have gotten it one year because it, it just isn't that unusual for me to be sitting – I mean I'm a, in the news business. I'm a journalist. For me to be sitting there watching him and have him, A, talk about something I didn't know about, something kind of important that I didn't know about. I could give an example of that even. Um, explain it. Explain a complicated thing extraordinarily well, much better than anybody else I can think of. And then, you know, and then sort of also because of who he is, point some fingers and say – and. And so here's this thing you didn't know about. Here are some of the aspects of it. And here's who screwed it up. Uh, and to me, I, there's like really never been anybody who could do that except for, of course, his offshoot, Colbert, who could do that as well. Right. And, and also he can be funny at the same time. He's very funny. And so I, right, I, so I was thinking that he's on two cutting edges. You know, one is 
being funny and on the other side caring about the news, you know, and most people are more one or the other. And so sometimes he would sort of lean back and forth on either side of the nose of, of that line. So maybe sometimes when Teresa didn't think he was as funny, maybe he was going a little bit too far for your taste over into the really caring about the news. But he really cared about it. It's not just that he was talking about it, as so many comedians can do. You feel, and there are certain ways that he demonstrated on the show, that he really, really, really cared about what was going on. And, you know, even just the fact that he made that movie that he made and whoever knows, who knows what he's going to do now. But it probably, you know, is involves his actual caring. And so going along with that for me is the, the edge between cynicism and earnestness. You know, like he's earnest enough He's not he's cynical, but he's not so cynical that um, that he goes over the edge. He sort of has earnestness pulling him back in the other direction. Um, but I definitely think, yeah, so many of my students say they got got all their news from him. And maybe it's not such a bad place. I think the other thing that we, we reacted to so well over this stretch has been authenticity. He seems for the most part, to be sharing some kind of very authentic version of his own reactions, just the way you would talking to a friend, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I'll give you my example, too. I was watching a lot of old Stewart clips, and one that jumped out at me was uh, he obviously was very moved uh, and troubled by everything that happened as a result of 9-11. But he was talking about this bill to provide medical coverage for first responders to 9-11 uh, who didn't have it. And, and he was going into some of the details, staying funny. One of the things that he proved, I think, is that you can be Howard Beale, sticking your head out the window, getting everybody else to just stick their heads out the window and say you're mad as hell and not, uh, not going to take it anymore. And if you're funny, you can load a lot of detail into that statement, yeah. too. And so keeping the pace up, keeping his momentum, he explained all the details. Then he explained that there was Republican opposition to this. Then he said, but it'll probably pass anyway, right? And then he explained, no, the Democrats had actually rigged this thing up so that it, it was an unusual format that needed a two-thirds vote because there were things that they didn't want to deal with in this bill that they didn't want to talk about. So after eviscerating the Republicans, tearing them apart, he, then he show, showed that the Democrats were complicit in this. And he it showed it in a way that I think almost anybody could understand. And I can't think of another person who could do that and entertain us as much as, much at the same time. Mm-hmm. Definitely not when he first started. I mean, now I think John Oliver takes that to a whole nother level because he just grabs that one that one subject and takes takes it on for 15 minutes or however long that goes on for. But he, he's also, you know, he calls out the media in a way. It, it It's just about the show's just as much about how people report the news as it is the news themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know. I, there's a reason people watch Fox News. They want commentary. They want you to tell them what to think. But John Stewart's doing it and being funny and not lying to people. So, you know, he's actually using actual facts. So I think that's part of his. his you know, John Oliver has an entire week to, to sort of the prepare the long arc that he has, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love what he's doing. And he sort of proved his mettle when Stewart was away that mm-hmm. he could do a daily show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I almost wouldn't be surprised to see him come back, but it must be really fun for him to be on HBO where he can use any language that he wants mm-hmm. and go as long as he wants on any particular topic. And and I don't know. I've been thinking about John Oliver versus John Stewart. And I mean, I, yeah, I like them both too, but I feel like John Stewart is better for that job. Mm-hmm. And why do I think that? And I think it ha- sort of has something to do with his personality. Like it's it's just the charm. Is it charm? Is it the personal charm? I mean, John Oliver is charming too, but I feel like... He's invested. I think he's, he seems invested. Stewart? And when, yeah. And when he's not, you can tell when he's not. When he has a an interview 
of some fluff movie that's just clearly somebody on tour. He won't even talk about it. He won't even pretend that he's seen the movie. And I like that. I like the <laughs> fact that he's, he's just going to talk about whatever he wants to talk But if there's a book that he's read that he really likes, he's going to jump way deep so, into the book. Well, yeah. I, am I the only person who almost on any given night would turn the show act off after the first two segments? The first two segments are usually – the first one is him sometimes working with one of his correspondents or more of his correspondents. Uh, the second segment is usually more of the same of that. And then the third segment is typically uh, an interview. And I've always thought he was actually a, a, not a very good interviewer, mm-hmm. a little bit on the sycophantic side. Yes, definitely. Um, rarely asked penetrating questions. As much as I admired his work everywhere else, I, I found him— well, Wasn't he thought to be a very difficult interview? Didn't Obama say it was the hardest interview? Yeah, I don't understand why that. I mean, and and maybe with a longer form, like with Obama, he wouldn't, you know, be loading up the show with these other elements. He did ask, "Did you kill JFK?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually went to see the show taped live about six, maybe six years ago or so, and he had this guy on who'd written a book that the name of which I can't remember, but if anyone remembers, there was a smiley face with a Hitler mustache, and I think it was comparing the Clintons to <laughs> to Hitler. Or it maybe it's the Fifty Obama. Shades of Grey. Though. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> the only book we know about. Right? And John Stewart just clearly hated this man. And the the interview segment went on for over twenty minutes, and it was just him basically tearing into this guy. And they had to, they knew they were going to have to cut and paste so much of this interview together that he taped a thing, a disclaimer saying, you know, this is going to look crazy to anyone at home because we had to take all these bits and pieces. And so I think, like you're saying, when he's really invested, he's invested. Yeah. When he's not, he's not. And I think maybe in that slightly adversarial format, he might be kind of interesting. But for the most part, as an interviewer, I I thought, first of all, he would occasionally pretend that utterly appalling people like Dennis Miller were not utterly appalling people. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, And that that crazy judge from Fox uh, uh, News that he had, Napolitano? No, what's his name? Oh, yeah, another guy that you're talking about. I mean, and I have, look, I, I. bubble over with admiration for Jon Stewart. But, I mean, the interviews I I, I thought were often kind of pointless, often squeezed to the end where even if he had a few good questions to ask, there really wasn't quite enough time. By by contrast, though, Jimmy Fallon's interviews. (laughs) (laughs) If if you would even call them an interview. Okay, well, but just about Jon Stewart for a second, though, too, because I think he... um, it's like that's where the comedy show – is it a comedy show or is it not a comedy show? Mm-hmm. Question sort of comes into play. Like, in a way, he's trying to do s- interviews that are a little too unfunny, but then sometimes the people try to be funny, but they're not that funny. And so it's just kind of awkward. Sometimes. I thought Colbert actually yeah. mastered the interview thing a little bit better, that often yeah. by staying in character and and then therefore prying various kinds of uh, concessions or rejoinders out, out of his – but, you know, he – I don't know. He somehow or other – the, whatever the text was that you were supposed to be engaging with, he kind of did. He, and he, but he also somehow schooled the person he was interviewing, like, don't, don't try to keep up with me. Right. Don't <laughs> go with me. Yeah. Just stay with yeah. what, you're, what you know. And they, they must have been briefed. Right, because they're not going to be as funny as right. Them. No, I think I think one reads that 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 was just absolutely pretend. First of all, that you're dealing with an actual person as opposed to right. somebody playing a character, and and then respond as you would. Um, all right, so we've got a lot of calls coming in here, and I think it would be fun to put a few of them on the air. We also do want to talk in a little bit of, on this segment about who 
who can emerge both in that chair on The Daily Show and maybe, I mean, this is a great time to be starting something too. Some people may start other kinds of things. That's a, the good thing about death is it brings renewal. So, you know, if we're going to lose Jon Stewart. Unless uh, it's your own. Unless it's your own. And even then, you know, I mean, so somebody gets to experience renewal, just not you. Uh, here's Hillary in Wallingford. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, first of all, I love your show. And the hearts are called Conversation Hearts. Conversation <laughs> Hearts. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about the um, the time in 2004 when Jon Stewart was on Crossfire and uh, with Tucker, Tucker Carlson and did the whole thing about not being his monkey and how I thought it was like a big turning point for The Daily Show and got kind of serious, but was he was able to... Um, to show that he was really invested in what he was talking about and really cared about the news. Yeah, I'm, I think, in the minority about that, but does anybody else want to talk? I mean, I'm assuming there are other people who. who Wait, why that. are you in the minority about it? I'm in the minority about it just because I actually sort of thought it was sort of bad for him. Well, you it's know, a little grandstandy. Right. If you're going to go on somebody's show, <laughs> I don't think you can go on somebody's show for the purpose of objecting to everything that they do. And, and he did do the little dodge there where he said, I mean, one of his bailouts was, and this was brought up in a piece, I think, from Slate, uh, Teresa, that you sent around this week, I'm a comedian. Um, We're fake news. Yeah, we, we, do, we do fake news, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I know, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I think... I liked it because I liked what he said to Tucker yeah. Carlson. I think most people thought that was a great moment, and, and so, and I, I bow to all of the rest of you. I sort of thought, you know what, you can do that on your own show. When you go on somebody else's show... I mean, you wouldn't want somebody to go on The Daily Show and spend the entire time talking about, a, about what a piece of crap The Daily Show is. No, That's but if bad you ha- form. If you ask Jon Stewart on your show, what else are you asking him on for? Like, what, what else was he on there for? I they were surprised. To- I, they were, yeah. <laughs> That's where the monkey line came. Yeah. As Hillary points out, there was that line about I'm not your monkey because I think they were expecting him to be funny. Uh, and rather than being and funny. they said that. Yeah. They said, Tucker Carlson said, well, you're not going to come to my house for dinner or something like that. Like, as if that <laughs> could happen. <laughs> I'd love to see that dinner. But he thought this was the one time he could he could really do something, really really make some kind of a point on that show, and he did it. And now we're still talking about it all these years oh, later. Yeah. So right. I guess I'm his, in the majority. And it was yeah. his chance to you know not be preaching to his choir because the people who are watching him every night probably agree with him. Probably maybe not. I think there's probably some people now who just watch him because they know they have to. To you know somewhere some conservative politician is watching him because they know they they're going to get skewered. But right. um, yeah, go ahead. Finish your thought. No, that's okay. That's it? Yeah. You refuse to finish your thought? <laughs> yes. All right, I'm going to grab I've got a few calls coming in. I want to put a few people on there. Here's Brian in West Hartford. Hi, Brian. Hi. I Just to revisit some of the past, I mean, Jon Stewart had a late-night show. It was canceled, and he took over Craig Kilborn's show in The Daily Show. Now, I, I don't dispute that it's a very different show under Jon Stewart, but it was a placeholder that Jon Stewart was able to take, it had already established this thing of making fun of how the news is delivered. That wasn't his trope. That was something he inherited, and maybe he emancipated it. But I guess I'm wondering, perhaps The Daily Show, as a placeholder, is maybe it's strong enough to survive without him, or maybe this has run its course. There are offshoots, like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, is sort of a Daily Show-esque offshoot. Maybe there's a new thing. Um, I liked The Craig Kilborn Daily Show. It was much more absurdist. It wasn't trying to be that relevant. Obviously, Stuart took it in a different direction. So my question to you guys is, is it going to go in a different direction, or is that over? Is that mission of John Stewart's over? Maybe we're in a new place, and we need to find out what that is. I, I Well, actually, I should let the panelists answer. I, I, just I, re- I saw an interview with uh, Jason Jones this morning who was saying that that the show is much more than 
just John Stewart. Mm-hmm. And this may be him lobbying for the, the, <laughs> for the, the seat. I, I don't know. But he was saying, you know, there's so much work that goes into this and so many people who are watching Fox News for, you know, 24 hours a day that their eyes are falling out um, and, and scanning the media that, that maybe it, it can continue the way it is with somebody plugging in and just swerving it in the direction of their personality. I think it's a really good question, and uh, I'm, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I think um, there. I love, I love that they're doing it. I mean, I think we, w- I would really miss it if no one was, no one was watching Fox News twenty four hours and a day and and telling me s- some crazy things they're saying that other people are taking seriously. I, I, I think that's a really useful social function because of the na- maybe because of the nature of Fox News and all the misleading kind of news that people get. And it also doesn't compete with the 1130 sort of the big guys, the, the, the Jimmys and Dave. <laughs> uh, so there's sort of that wide open turf there. Thought? Well, I have this strong feeling that whoever takes over should be from the show already. I don't really like the idea of someone coming in from the outside. And I think part of that is because I think some of the funniest – still most biting parts are are those segments where a correspondent goes out and talks to some random politician in some tiny little town doing something crazy or whatever. And um, so, yeah, I think it can survive and it can, like you said, it just is a new personality yeah. at the helm. And if, there's slightly a, changing if there it. is a God, mm-hmm. they won't bring back Craig Kilborn. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate to disagree with our friend Brian here. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know that you. Uh, yeah, I don't even know that you are disagreeing with. I mean, uh, you know, I think the difference between Craig Kilborn and and maybe even Peter Sagal to a certain degree to him since he mentions wait wait don't tell me one of the things that Stewart did that I just haven't seen that much is something very close I used the word authenticity before you just feel like you're you're very close to his skin on this you know most nights if he's angry he tells you he's angry if he's I mean he's not he's so rarely slick or contrived he's or sort of authentic well, yeah you know it's funny you say that because after going to tape going to see the show taped I became far more of aware of what seemed like a performance from Mm -hmm. him to me and what seemed like he was really amped up and freaking out about something. And and I liked the show less after that. I watched it less. Mm -hmm. I didn't tune in as often. Because I was like, I can't, I can't watch you pretend to be mad about this. It really bothers me. <laughs> but he can't come raging out. No, no, no. In I the know pre-show. he can't. No, but yeah, I'm yeah. going to kill yeah. everyone. <laughs> I mean, I think your point's a good one. I was always keenly aware that this was a performance, particularly in the way that this man used his voice. You know, I mean, in addition to everything else, and 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 certainly also Brian's writer, Jason Jones is right. Excuse me. There's a lot of fabulous writers who work on this show, and the correspondents are great, and they just seem to have no shortage of new ones. The other ones, you know, Steve. Carell goes to leaves to be a movie star, or Rob Corddry or Ed Helms. They just find other people. You know, they just seem to keep finding them. The writing is really strong, but I do feel as though Stewart's performance, and maybe it is the somebody performing as a natural person as opposed to just a natural person. I, I used to notice what he would do with his voice over the course of, the, of a night. I mean, just in, almost as a singer, you know? I mean, just doing just this, these, these huge vocal dynamics in different ways. And, of course, also all the little, you know, imitations. And, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, mean I, w- I wish I could do Joe Lieberman as Droopy Dog, uh, <laughs> but that was fabulous. And, and yes, of Mitch course, I, we all can do Mitch yeah. McConnell as that turtle, of course we can. But I mean, you know, the, but he's the guy who sort of figured that out. Or I, I'll never forget 
and I, I can't. I wish I pulled this clip actually. But um, after that first disastrous Obama debate, remember the debate oh, right, in, right, endeavor? Yeah, yeah. You know where Obama just really kind of seemed to be just checking his watch and not really responding. And and uh, uh, Stewart, uh, they have such a mastery of clips on that show. And he plays mm-hmm. this clip of, of Mitt Romney saying some stuff that's basically not true. And then Obama just sort of tossing off. This very, you know, kind of gentle, dismissive, you know, non-committal response, and 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 you know, and that he had saw, and then I think Stewart said that afterwards. He said, "Well, what do you want me to say?" And Obama, he said, "I've only got two minutes, or or something like that." And Stewart, looking at his watch, went, "I don't know. How about liar, 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 liar?" And he held up his watch as he was looking at it. Lie, Romney, lie, lie, Romney, lie. Yeah. You know, I just thought this, just even vocally, it was just so brilliantly done. You yeah. Know. You know, right, be, if it's a performance, yeah. it, you know, it's a good performance. I think it's a really good performance, even if he's not entirely 100% sincere. Who knows where anyone's sincerity mm-hmm. is? You know, it's somebody who's going to believe in doing that kind of performance. I want to yeah. watch. And, and really, part of it might be that we need somebody like him going into this news cycle, this this presidential election because he helps everybody through that, through well, the sort of insanity of if, those. If, yeah, and on, on Tuesday he did say, um, I have a question for you guys. Did I die? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah right. So yeah, that was great. Maybe he'll stay because he said July or September, you know, so, but no, but that's this still, it's still only 2015. Oh, he sorry. He's not going to be here yeah. to save he's us. He's not going to be there. Or Let's he go, comes look. back and does his election special or something. I, I hope because he, he there's no one better at it. He's going to do something. Quick call from Beth and then uh, if anybody has a, a final prediction about who, who can take over, I'd love to hear. Uh, hi, Beth. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, love your show. Um, I guess what I wanted to get your guys' opinion on was I think what's so remarkable about, remarkable about John Stewart is, is the believability of him. Like, I know it's a stage character, and we all know the great writers and all of that. But when something really bad happens or something maddening happens, you know, right before he breaks, he says, we'll be right back. He'll just You feel like you kind of get in and see some real exasperation that you feel also when you see some form of the real John Stewart, whereas I feel like with Jason Jones and – John Oliver and Larry Wilmer, they're great, but they don't ever seem to get out of persona. They're funny, and you know, I enjoy watching them, too, but I never get that inner feeling like I've really seen the real them. They, they stay so much in that character. I think that's what we'll all miss the most about him is that genuine, it seems genuine, frustration when something really bad happens, that he'll be in his character, he'll do all the satiric stuff, and then you do get a glimpse of real frustration that I think we all feel. And even when he's interviewing people like Huckabee and other people who are, to some people's opinion, maddening to listen to, he'll let them talk. You know, he doesn't rip them apart to a degree like Colbert did. But then he will say these little digs where you're like, yes, you know, that's what I'd say if I was sitting in that chair now. So I think it's that peek into what seems to be a real person and the genuine feeling of a man that I feel like we get with Jon Stewart. I'm with you. Don't get with the other yeah. people. Yep. They just never seem to get out of their role. Larry yep. Beth, I, 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 I think you've nailed it, Beth, and thank you very much for your call. I think you you nailed something there. Um, very quickly here, does any? I mean, does anybody have like sort of a, a out of the box wild card, wild horse uh, idea? I mean, we I, I sort of circulated a salon piece, which at the bottom of it had some some ones. Anybody? I mean, because one thing to say about John Stewart, and I think Brian made this point. You know, I mean, if you'd ever heard of John Stewart before you saw him on The Daily Show, and then you either watched MTV 
Or you watch the Larry Sanders show where he kind of played the perennially bubbling up guy who was going to get some great talk show someday, much to Larry's consternation. But really, I mean, he absolutely was a B-list guy who everybody knew was going to be an A-list guy someday. So it doesn't – the new person doesn't have to be somebody that everybody knows. Um, yeah, I, I kind of want him to pick someone, you know, because he has a, he has a good eye for talent. Mm. You sort of want a fusion of John Hodgman and Lewis Black, you know? Um, Hodgman's no. urbanity and Lewis Black's rage. Um, I, one person that I, I'd be interested in, and I, I can't believe I'm saying this because I've had such bad experiences with him. But bad experiences because I just sort of – I've been with him over extended periods of time, well, once, and then he actually came and was on the nose once. And, and I had this very uncomfortable feeling like he didn't like me and he didn't want to be here. And I mean, like, really, as powerfully as I've ever had from somebody without him saying this. But I think Michael Ian Black is an inter- inter- interesting possibility, oh. a guy who kind of has this mark. Did you say no? I said, oh, oh. Yeah, but I feel like everyone gets that feeling from him. So it's not just you. And I would add an N to Teresa yeah. and just say no. I, I, he's, there's something a little bit too self-referencing and dark about that guy. Uh, he's very funny, yeah. but he's funny like, look how dark I can be. Yeah, mm-hmm. possibly. Well, um, nobody... I like, I like um, Jessica Williams, but mm-hmm. I don't know if she's too young to bring that sort of um, Little young. scope yeah. to it. But she is great. She's yeah. been a great find for them. All right, so very quickly here, we have to, we're have we saying goodbye to Jon Stewart. We, we're not really because he's don't not dead it. and he no, hasn't gone and we don't know when he's leaving and all that kind of stuff. We are, for real, saying goodbye to David Carr. Uh, David Carr, the amazing media writer for The New York Times. Uh, and uh, apropos of that, well, first of all, um, I, he appears very prominently. He became kind of the star of this documentary called, called Page One, Page One, uh, Inside Look at the New York Times. Uh, and that's when you really, really get to know him if you saw this movie. But one of the things they did in the movie was play this clip of his appearance on Colbert. Now, you've got a quite interesting biography that you, you outline here in this book. You, were a, uh, you are a former crack addict, and you are a reporter for the New York Times. Which of these two do you think is more damaging to society? I don't think that's really a tough call. I mean, journalism, if it's practiced appropriately, is a civic good. Um, Informs the public about things that are going on. Um, Using crack cocaine is an idiotic activity that will eventually result in mania and death. So, Mm -hmm. not even close, I guess. All right. So, so you haven't read the editorial page of the New York Times lately. So Colbert staying in character. I mean, I don't know how big a hero Carr was to. I mean, I'm in the partly in the newspaper business, so I, I mean, I thought he walked on water. Was, was he? Did he loom large for any of you? Or I, th- I page one that the, yeah. the first that when I saw this this morning, that was where I came to know of him as a figure, mm-hmm. and the first thing I thought of was him like tearing into the guys from Vice because yeah. it made me laugh so hard. I mean. It, it, he it's funny because he would have been a great replacement for John Stewart, right? Because yeah. he was he was funny and he was personable and he was super smart and had no fear. Um, I had the same thought today that I mean I don't know that it would have worked, but it was sort of an interesting thing to think about. Anybody else with a David Carr? I think it, I think it's interesting that during this weird time at the New York Times, where they're sort of um, booting out anybody who's not a name who makes over X amount of dollars uh, and filling it with young eager. Employees that that uh, he retained this sort of midwesterner, tell it like it is kind of persona in the face of 
some of their name brands like David Brooks or David Brooks or <laughs> Ross do that or don't well, that. Well, also, I mean, I think, you know, during this time with, I mean, one of the, I guess maybe the last piece of his that, that ran in real time was his piece talking about Brian Williams and John Stewart right. and contrasting the, the sort of the, the two, their two states. And you realize that, I mean, you were waiting, I was waiting for the David Carr piece about this. I knew it was coming, it would come. Well, he was all and, over the news earlier this week. Right. He was on every show giving his opinion about this. I mean, he became sort of a, a period at the end of one of the best David Carr sentences, which was This Week in News. Yeah, I used to never pay much attention to the business section, but that Monday column is so good. And it was like, I, it's only recently that I discovered it. And it's like every Monday, something to look forward in the business section. And now it's gone. All right, we have to break. I'm in a lot of trouble here. So we'll break. And we'll come back. All right, that of course is Joni Mitchell. Uh, I feel like we're all doing the same shows this week. You know, we're all doing David Carr and John Stewart and all this stuff. So I, I wanted us to do something else here in the second segment here. And it did strike me that uh, well, first of all, Joni Mitchell's on the cover of New York Magazine. It's on in their special fashion issue of New York Magazine. I think part of this little trend that's going on right now that um, smart older women are the queens of fashion right now. Joan Didion, of course, uh, the uh, the face of the Celine uh, fashion line here. So Joni Mitchell, who's 71 and has been a uh, relentless cigarette smoker her entire life, and that's not kind to your face and everything. But she's still, she's on the cover uh, of uh, New York Magazine, their fashion edition, with a pretty interesting interview. And then uh, Annie Lennox, who's actually 11 years younger than Joni Mitchell. She's uh, the same age as me and Jim Chapdelaine, a 1954 birthday. Uh, you know, in the Grammys, surrounded by youth, surrounded by uh, young performers, uh, just tore the Grammys apart. Well, maybe we can sort of come to that. We can, you can give you a little cl- clip of that, but it would just absolutely set the Grammys on their ear. So here are these two kind of divas, you know, women of a certain age, uh, who um, who in some ways maybe sort of excite us more than most of what's offered to us on the current youth market. So I don't know. First of all, uh, Irene Papoulos, did anything jump out at you in the Joni Mitchell? This kind of rancorous Joni Mitchell interview. She's not really too happy with much of anybody. Well, right. And you say excite us. And I I wonder who the us is, because I don't think everyone's excited by these women, though. Annie Lennox is somehow exempt from this disparaging look at these women that people have. But I think Joni Mitchell gave us a lot of reasons um, to to criticize her in that article. And she there's something I mean, I was a total fan of hers, you know, until until maybe midway through her career or something like that. Um, But there's something about her intense determination to do things her own way that's both attractive and repulsive, I think, to people. 
you know, it's interesting, Jim, that she says this uh, midway through the career because so many people did bail on Joni Mitchell at a certain point, well before her work ceased to be interesting. I mean, I I stayed with her all the way through and have listened to the last two albums and maybe not liked them all that much. But you know, there was sort of a point where she did Mingus and people right. were getting a little. But you know, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter sure. and, and and Night Ride Home, all these other sort of three quarter career mark things that she did after she had infuriated her base. <laughs> well, she took pr- um, pride in sort of breaking the mold that she had been cast in and being a little bit of an uh, empresario. She's the one who, even though Jaco Pastorius was known to all of us in the music world, and she took him and featured him in a way that he hadn't been used to before. And Jaco Pastorius being the most the, incredible, incredibly the, creative, sort of the Charlie Parker base, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. and, and sort of hasn't been replicated since. I mean, people try to replicate it all the time, but um, he invented it. Um, and she did present great musicians in great light after she moved past her folky period, and I love almost every period of her. So, and she's always had this same personality thing. I mean, I don't remember the the sort of young, sweet Joni Mitchell interviews when she was on the Johnny Cash show. She was always seemed so she always seemed so pleasant and stuff like that. But I'm sure behind the scenes she was difficult. But that's you know her role as an artist and her her right to be that way. So, uh, Teresa, in this um, interview, we read, we meet a Joni Mitchell who's really not too happy with anybody. She's certainly not happy with any biographers or anybody else who might be trying to write about her or package up her music or honor her at a museum. <laughs> or there's nobody. She, she really, hates you all. That's yeah. basically or, what and, and, and God yes. forbid that uh, anybody make a biopic about her, especially if it has Taylor Swift mm-hmm. in it, which was apparently seriously contemplated. I had, I had no idea. Yeah, I don't know. She came off as really rancorous to me, and I like Joni Mitchell too. Uh, but she—it's like she's—you know—I said in our emails that she's the Kanye West of folk music. She just makes it really hard for you to like her, and you just kind of want her to make her music and then go back into a closet because she's going to come out and just yell at you, apparently. But um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, it it was a strange, strange interview. But isn't there something about her? Um, that sort of, I don't care about all of you, I'm going to do it my way, that's attractive at all? There is, but you also have to be willing, like, if you're going to do it your way and refuse to listen, like, take anyone's advice who, they they're, they weren't all stupid. They Some of them knew what they were talking about. And you have to be willing to have your fans bail on you halfway through your career because you started making weird music they didn't like. But it, but it really wasn't yeah. that weird. <laughs> no. It was, you know, it's not by, by mm-hmm. today's standards, it's just... But some of it's still it pop music. Different. It's People just don't like you know, but it, it didn't accept the challenge. Yeah. That's what that's what an artist is yeah. going to say to you is accept this challenge right. and let me fail or let me succeed. But if you if you like me, you'll let me try this. I do think yeah. that there there were many disappointingly fair weather. Not I'm not saying that that's you, Irene, but disappointingly fair weather. Joni Mitchell fans who kind of stayed with her for through Court and Spark and for the Roses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. and and Blue. And then things got a little bit different with uh, the hissing of summer lawns and Hijira, which are both monumental LPs. And then got really weird with Mingus, or just very different and hard to hard to handle for her. But you know, she came back with all this other stuff, and her audience wasn't around anymore. And I do think that is really sad. I do. There was one line that jumped out at one of you here. I can't remember who singled it out, but uh, Joni was claiming anyway to have heard a record company executive being interviewed on the radio, uh, and the record company executive basically admitting that there. 
they're not even in the market for gigantic, titanic talent anymore. What they want is a look and somebody who's willing to cooperate, a certain look. And somebody who's willing. Were yeah. you the one who flagged yeah. yeah. And in a way that connects to the John Stewart discussion, it's sort of, at least for me, in the it's sense the that you want, yeah. you want, there's something, just a look and a willingness to compromise is what so many people have. And that's the opposite of really being who you are in some kind of intense, personal, authentic, and or maybe earnest the way. the difference between art and ambition. It, it, like they just want somebody who's ambitious. Yeah. Uh, right. But there's always been this veneer of pop music. Since, you know, Frankie Avalon or whoever, how far back you want to go, that's always been a little bit silly and appeals to teens and, and was there for us, whether it's the 1910 Fruit Gum Company. But then underneath that was Miles Davis and, and uh, um, Joni, Mitchell. Joni Mitchell and people who were just moving the boulder. Yeah, you know? and now it's D'Angelo or something with somebody equally uncooperative. Yeah. Now uh, it's Beck. It's Beck, D'Angelo and Beck. And Beck uh, got the Grammy. Uh, one of the things that did jump out in this essay is something I've been following for a long time. Joni Mitchell's had a, a lifetime of actually very poor health, uh, which she's, uh, of course, um, dealt with very cannily by becoming one of the most inveterate cigarette smokers who ever lived. Mm -hmm. But um, she's had polio, scarlet fever, dengue, uh, abscessed ovaries. This is all according to the article. And this is something I had been aware of. She now suffers from something called Morgellons syndrome which she describes as a, quote, weird, incurable disease that seems like it's from outer space, uh, which doctors find mysterious, which is to put it mildly, and which Mitchell has described this way, fibers in a variety of colors protrude out of my skin like mushrooms after a rainstorm. They cannot be forensically identified as animal, vegetable, or mineral. So setting aside the fact that this sounds like something out of, out of a Jeff, Van, uh, uh, Jeff Vandermeer novel, um, well, and how could somebody be not something not be animal, vegetable, or mineral? Isn't that isn't everything one of those things? I know, well, but I think unless it's, a, it's imaginary. It's a they might be giant song. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I read because I did some reading up on Morgellons after she said this, and uh, it somewhere it may have been the CDC says these fibers tend to be something like ninety percent cotton when they. Which what I don't. Yeah, I don't mean to, I don't mean yeah. to be laughing, but I mean the CDC also basically yeah. believes that this may not be a real disease. Yes, right? they yeah. basically think that it's kind of uh, What's the other that it's somatic. Basically, that people have some <clears throat> underlying mental illness that results in this. Disease. But that's a big difference in a physical. That's disease. a big difference. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's cotton still really... comes out of your skin versus saying it's imaginary. Which yeah. is it? Yeah. Well, they're not saying it's imaginary. They're saying that if you treat whatever underlying mental illness might be, be there, that these things are probably going to go away because you're manifesting them in yourself. And you should probably wear a blend. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so somebody who's maybe dealing with the aging process a little bit more gracefully, although Joni in her own way, I mean, I think she, uncompromising as she is, is Annie Lennox. Um, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this. Maybe we'll, we'll go out of this segment with her singing at the Grammys. How, how many of you either watched the Grammys or kind of came back to You were watching I the Grammys, it, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and th this really was kind of a moment, right? It was, uh, yeah, very much of a moment. I mean, you know, you just, when she came out, the whole song changed, the energy of the whole song, even though I, I like that song a lot. But she really sort of em embodied that song in a way that Hozier doesn't really seem to exactly embody it as much as she did anyway. Um, and her way of being sexy in a very, it's like she is her age and she's also sexy at the same time, I, which I have is to so say, great. My wife said, Oh my God, that's Annie Lennox. How old is she? <laughs> and I, I said, She's my age. And immediately I could see my wife try to 
vacuum those words back into right. her mouth as quickly as possible. But they, they wouldn't, and, and I'm not going to let her forget about it. In fact, I'm bringing it up right here. Well, I mean, as a musician, um, I, you're probably aware, my, my sense has always been that Annie Lennox is a singer that other singers get very excited about, that the Linda Ronstadt's of this world have said repeatedly over the years, why don't people pay even more attention to this woman? Well, first of all, she's a true singer. She's a musician. So she's not concerned with dancing. She's not, she's not auto-tuning anything. She's out there just delivering and, and singing from her heart. And I think a lot of that show is driven by uh, publicists and publishing, where you're seeing suddenly Paul McCartney is playing rhythm guitar <laughs> for Kanye West, who's singing. Who's who's not even a, who, and he's singing through an auto-tuned microphone. And I know that's cool and everything, but that's yeah. strictly a publishing move. That's that, so that's, everyone could get right. a bunch it's of dollars. The epitome of just a look and a willingness to compromise. Right, right? that's exactly. a cynical thing, right. right there. But her coming out and just and I and I also thought ELO was great. I thought the older performers were much. I more I never exciting. thought I would be so grateful for ELO. <laughs> I know. I know. That, it, that said was, something very alarming to me. You get the last word if you want one. Well, I was thinking about, you know, Annie Lennox is great and she's done. And I was like, it's really unfair to compare Megan Trainer to because Megan Trainer is going to be gone in five years. Right. And and not so sure. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, just by being an older performer on the Grammys means you've made it through like 40 years and everybody loves you and you're not going anywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. We, we'll go out with Annie Lennox singing, screaming, screaming Jay Hawkins's song from 1956. Because you're mine, yeah. You better stop the things you do. I tell you, I ain't lying. I ain't lying. You know, I can't stand. Now they won't come off. I probably shouldn't have tried out my new Fifty Shades of Grey handcuffs when I'm not in a relationship. A little help over here. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Kelsey Bissell. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Samantha B. For show pages, articles, and a list of all the Faith Middleton Show staff's safe words, visit our website, WNPR.org. We'll be back on Tuesday with a show about whether all the good ideas and culture have dried up. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, and if you'd like, by the way, for Valentine's Day to get uh, some uh, conversation hearts that have things on them, like safe word, uh, you know, email Teresa Kramer. She's putting out <laughs> 50 Shades of Gray conversation hearts. All right. Endorsements. Um, I would like to endorse the Dear Sugar podcast, which is on the WBUR website. Uh, it is fantastic. It's just a, um advice podcast, but it's... They describe it as deeply empathic advice, and it's just there's something really beautiful. And it's actually it's Cheryl Strayed who wrote Wild, and mm. this other guy, uh, Steve Almond, I think his name is. Oh, and Steve actually, been on our show yeah, a lot, yeah. And they're actually in conversation talking mm. about the letter, and they get into their own lives, and it's it's really beautiful. And um, and the Robert Durst thing yes. on HBO, the, the documentary yeah. yes. series. I've only There's only one out, but it's like the anti-serial, so if you like cereal, watch it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm with you on that, and I'm a big Steve Allman fan. All right, Jim, what have you got for us? Uh, quickly, um, 
just because he follows me on Twitter now. <laughs> the Nightly Show with uh, Larry Wilmore, which I actually like, which is a, sort of like The Nose um, uh, with a huge budget. And then I'm really late to the party on this, but uh, she's been very helpful in a project that I'm working on. Uh, the Immortal Life of Henry and Lack by Rebecca Sklute um, is a really amazing story for anyone who's had uh, any sort of malignancy issues and wants to know who owns your tissue. Right. This is about this woman who sort of her body became part of research, right? It's immortal. Yeah, immortal, yeah. Um, all right. Great recommendations. What have yeah. you got? Um, well, I have. I saw the Hartford Symphony last night, and there was this um, piano pianist doing the Rachmaninoff piano concerto, fantastic, named Sean Chen. Get get um, ten flex tickets to the Hartford Symphony and go to some symphonies. They're so interesting and magnificent. Um, but also, in, in in my my little candy would say, let's have an adventure on it, because I've been thinking that. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Why does it disturb me? What is it? Why is it so popular? You know, and I think part of it's why it's, why it's so popular is people want to have an adventure. They this might not exactly be the right kind of adventure, but this makes them think about adventure. You know, and there's an interesting article in the Atlantic um, this month called "Consent Isn't Enough: The Troubling Sex of Fifty Shades." That also makes you think about why it's potentially problematic. Is all of this on your candy? Yeah, no. all of, that's a big yeah. candy. It's a micro dots. Yeah. Let's have an adventure. <laughs> that's the candy. candy bar. All right. Uh, I'm going to uh, recommend a, a very easy and simple thing. It won't take you any time at all. But uh, just find, if you haven't seen it already, uh, Dana Carvey as both John Lennon and Paul McCartney. John Lennon asking from heaven about what Paul McCartney was doing at the Grammys and, and Paul McCartney trying to explain Kanye West and auto-tune to John Lennon. It's both enhanced and almost ruined by the fact that Bill Hader is sitting next to him laughing so hard that you almost can't hear everything that Dana Carvey does. But it just it, it's the perfect punctuation point to the conversation we just had. Um, I've recommended this in the past. And I think Jim is also an aficionado of it. And I'm going to recommend it now because one of the things I've realized about the television series Justified is you you don't need to have watched previous seasons of Justified. It's in its final season right now. I don't understand the plot of it. I couldn't ever explain to you what the plot of Justified is. But it it, it has actors doing their best work, whether it's Timothy Oliphant or uh, Walton Goggins, who plays Boyd, or uh, Mary Mary Steenburgen, who who is fabulous this season as Catherine. These are actors that you may know, McKelty Williamson, uh, from other stuff, but they're doing their best work in this with this over-the-top writing, over-the-top acting. I mean, all the stops are pulled out. Shakespearean. Yeah, just the the dialogue is tremendous. I couldn't possibly summarize the plot to you if I wanted to, except that lots of people are trying to corner various kinds of drug markets and real estate markets for drugs, and and Raylan Givens is trying to stop them. Uh, So, and then I'll just quickly mention uh, something that uh, is coming up a week from Sunday. A week from Sunday, and most many of us will be there, and that's the uh, red carpet experience for AIDS, uh, which is Oscar night in Hartford. Uh, It's at Spotlight Theaters. Uh, You can uh, we'll have to put a little link on the website so you can figure out how to order tickets. It's a, a wonderful party. Everybody has a great time. You can watch the Oscars. There may be nose-like activities going on there. I'm not 100% sure, but uh, lots of fun and funny people will be there. You can, too, and it supports a great cause. So think about going there. Sweetie, you know how you told me you had a dream that I gave you a diamond ring for Valentine's Day? Yes. And I told you that I'd take you out and tell you what that dream meant? Yes. Well, I got you a dream dictionary. You little... Ow! Ow! 